Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. This edition of the podcast examines the outlook for and opportunities within the bond market after the pandemic. I'm David Thorpe, Special Projects Editor at FT Advisor. Joining me today to discuss the topic are Ian Steely, Chief Investment Officer for International Fixed Income, JP Morgan Asset Management, and Manager of its Global Bond Opportunities Fund. James Clemster, Investment Director at Momentum Global Investment Management, and Alex Charters, Manager of the Ruffer Total Return Fund. Thank you all for joining me. With yields at such low levels, is it now the case that bonds have almost become an investment for capital gains rather than income? What are your thoughts on that, Ian? So I guess the question is when you talk about low yields, it very much depends about which part of the bond market you're actually looking at. So completely agree with you. If I look at 10 year government bonds or or gilts, as we call them today, we're sitting at a yield of um, just under just over 20 basis points, which is low. Um, It's as low as we've ever seen, uh, a lot lower than we were at the beginning of the year, where we were about 80 basis points. And we're as high as one and a half percent at times during 2018. So yes, in that instance, at the moment, government bonds do have limited income uh, attached to them. However, if you do look at other parts of the bond market, there is still some income available, especially relative to those low yields you see in in governments and and in cash at the moment. It just depends on the amount of risk you're willing to take. So for instance, if I look at investment grade credit today, you can achieve yields in a region of 2%. So granted, not as high as people would like, as investors would like, but it still does offer some form of income. And then if you're willing to go even further down the risk spectrum to things like emerging market debt, where you can get around 5% or even high yield credit bonds, where you can get around 6.5% on average, there is still the ability to gain that income in the fixed income space. So as I say, it's really just a case of what sort of bonds you buy and how much risk you're willing to take in your fixed income allocation. Thank you. James, uh, I know Momentum multi-asset is very much the focus of how you see the world and how, how in a multi-asset context, how do you see uh, bond investments right now? Yeah, David, I, mean, I think um, the way you, you phrased that question at the outset is quite an interesting perspective. You know, yields are low, so is it now only a, a capital uh, or a sort of capital return play? I mean, you know, the, the thing to bear in mind about fixed income is, you, you know, if you're expecting capital returns, you really need some sort of uh, reduction in yield or spread compression to really, you know, push up the the, the, the nominal price of these things because, uh, you know, price is inversely related to yield. So I'd almost sort of suggest where yields are today, it's, particularly on the government side of things, is, is even less uh well, it's even harder to really make a sort of cogent case to say you're going to get significant capital returns from here um, because, you know, the the, the, the the levels from which from here where yields can go is is, is pretty low indeed, really. There's not a lot of, of, of uh, further floor to, to go through as far as I could see. Thank you. Um, Alex, as Ian mentioned, um, yield on a 10-year guild, but indeed on most parts of the the bond market, the government bond market, have have come down quite a lot this year. And if you did buy those gilts when it was 80 basis points and now they're 20, you're sitting on a nice profit. But really, is that the only way we can think about it? 20 basis points is obviously a negative real yield. Can we only think about this stuff as, as a capital investment at this time? 
Well, David, I think um, it's worth casting our minds back to the start of the bond bull market 40 years ago, when a, a US 10-year government bond uh, paid you 16% nearly, and they were regarded as certificates of confiscation. No one would touch them with a barge pole. But of course, as uh, James noted, in order to get any capital gain anywhere, you need some kind of yield to compress. And um, as we've already seen, if the US 10-year that paid you 16% 40 years ago now pays you 0.7, not only is your income crushed in nominal terms, as you suggest, it's also crushed in real terms, but more importantly, your capacity for capital upside is extremely limited. Bonds are a mathematically bounded asset class after all. So it doesn't look good from an income point of view, um, especially not when you factored in inflation. But of course, to get the kind of returns that we've seen in recent years in capital terms, you'd have to see yields moving into unprecedentedly negative territory, um, which seems less likely. Thank you, James. If uh, an advisor's client, if their focus is on generating an income, how can they view the bond market in the current climate? Well, I think you need to return to the areas that Ian's already mentioned. There are some pretty healthy yields available in various parts of uh, of the fixed income markets, but but they you, but they do come with commensurately more risk as well. I, I think if you're looking to generate income from fixed income securities as of today, you really do need to be looking at various parts of the credit market, whether that be investment grade, whether that be high yield uh, or or other sort of slightly nichier pockets. Um, but you know the yields are, are reasonably attractive in in the uh, in the March kind of panic around the coronavirus, we saw uh, yield spreads move out materially. Uh, I think you know a lot of babies were being thrown out with bathwater at the time. Uh, the the implied uh, default rates from from the yield spreads you had in those markets at the time was very significant. It's come back in quite substantially, uh, but they're but they're not as low as they were last year. The yield spreads are not as low as they were last year. So actually, I think you know if as long as you have a reasonably positive view of what happens to the global economy on the way back out of uh, of this crisis? As long as you don't think that this this pandemic is sort of unpicking the very fabric of uh, how uh, economies function, uh, you know there are some pretty good uh, opportunities from a valuation perspective, from an income perspective, in in the credit markets. Thank you, Alex. I know your your fund is a is a total return mandate rather than having an income focus. But really, do you see any place for fixed income? for the income investor in the current climate? I think I'd pick up on something, first of all, that um, James said about credit. And uh, it's absolutely right, of course, that it's rallied ferociously, in fact, since the Federal Reserve waded in in March. Um, and you've had quite a tasty, uh, tasty pickup there. But the question you have to ask yourself is whether the yield on offer that versus these poultry yields on um, government bonds, 5% you know, in a high yield spread looks quite attractive uh, on the face of it. But if you think that default rates are actually going to go up to anything like they were in, say, 2008, if you think the recovery rates are going to fall, and if you think that the pricing in the market has been grossly distorted by Federal Reserve liquidity that can't ultimately address questions of solvency, then I would say 5% looks like potentially quite mediocre reward. And actually, as far as credit goes in our 
fund, we've actually got some effectively short credit positions because I think what's happened economically is a bit like a depth charge, David. Um, the explosion's gone off, but we haven't actually seen quite how much uh, debris is going to float to the surface, and that's going to play out over a rather longer time frame. Thank you. Um, Ian, there's debris on the ocean. How far out should one be swimming to, to find it, or how far out the credit curve is it attractive to go to, um, to find an attractive income right now? So you know, I think one of, the, one of the very first things that I was ever taught was do not fight the central banks. We know at the moment that they are putting a huge amount of stimulus into the, into the system. Both, um, it's been very impressive, both from the scale and the size that they're doing, but also the speed that they've, uh, they've um, engaged in the market. And as, as has been said, it's caused credit um, to come back in a long way. But it does feel like you've got that central bank safety net in a way for, for certain assets. So the way, the way we're approaching it across, across our strategies is you do take a bit of a barbell. So still comfortable owning kind of high quality parts of, of, the, of the government bond market to offer you some form of protection. I, I agree with, with what was said earlier that you know, some of those capital gains maybe won't be as, as high, but I think it will still off, offer you some form of protection. Then you can look at credit because the, the central banks, the Fed in particular now, are buying corporate bonds. So they offer you um, some kind of safety net there. And then really it is a case of effectively rolling up your sleeves and getting, getting, getting in the midst of, of, of the, the weaker or the, the lower quality credits and ensuring that you are investing in areas where the companies are going to be around in the next one to two years. Because ultimately, as a fixed income investor, you want to be paid back your money. You want to be paid back your interest. And we want to ensure that we're putting capital in place that, that, we'll, that we will get that back on. So it feels to me that you've got this central bank support for certain parts of the market. There's still opportunities elsewhere, but it's you know, get your hands dirty to find out where those opportunities are and make sure you're in the right parts of the bond market that you're going to actually get paid that income back. Because, you know, as Alex said, it likelihood is that default rates are going to move a little bit higher from where we are today. And that's where you do not want to be. Thank you, Alex. Um, historically, in in times of recession, uh, high yield, uh, the high yield market prices in much higher default rates than typically eventually happens. But do, do you feel at the moment that that's not not really the case, and that the high yield market is almost being too optimistic um, about what's about to come in the economy? Yes, I, I think we do think the high yield market is being overly optimistic. Although, as Ian says, uh, David, there are always opportunities in this space. And the places you might find return are with specialist managers who really understand their niche in distressed credit or um, whichever area of the market you're interested in. But I think the other thing that Ian said that's particularly important is about the speed and scale of the central bank response. Um, yes, I think that is going to help underwrite borrowing costs for governments. It has to, to make affordable the fiscal blitz we're seeing. But fundamentally, this is causing an explosion in the money supply. And eventually, I suggest this is going to feed through into higher inflation. And in a world where nominal yields are incredibly low, you're not getting any compensation for that risk at all. So in our portfolio, we don't own any conventional bonds. But we do, we do own a lot of inflation-protected bonds for a world where rates have to stay low, as Ian suggests, but inflation is going to drift higher. Thank you. James, 
as a multi-asset investor, I mean, do you find this a good, an interesting time to be in, in high yield or, or are you in, in the camp with Alex and his team of, um, of shunning those assets completely? Uh, no, I mean, no, we are we are invested in high yield. And also, just to echo the point Alex made, we also invest in inflation protection. Uh, I think we also think that inflation is underpriced presently. But coming back to the high yield market, we, we, uh, we've been long-standing users of high yield, but on a tactical basis. So, you know, we, uh, we bought a lot of it following the financial crisis, where, where spreads were actually, you know, close to double what we saw in this period here. Uh, we've held it for a long time. We, we actually were pretty much out of it. Uh, in 2019, we thought that there wasn't enough uh, opportunity in the spread there. And then as they moved out a lot, uh, we bought back in, in uh, March and April. Um, we don't, we've, we've, been, we've been holding it on the way. We've benefited from that price increase. I don't, we're not buying it today. We're sort of sitting on it. Um, but, yeah, you know, it's, I think the, 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 the question marks raised over solvency and, and making sure that, you know, business, the businesses you are investing in are able to repay over the next couple of years, a point that Ian made as well is absolutely key. So where we do still hold high yield, it's through active managers, it's through people we believe to be the best in the business in terms of doing that credit research and 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 uh, identifying the bonds that are most likely to be repaid over 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 their tenor. Thank you. And Ian, in your Global Opportunities Fund, um, what's your exposure like to high yield? Is it, uh, is it an area that you are increasing? So, I mean, similar to what, what James was saying, we'd, we'd actually taken our high yield risk down into this. We added we added back. I mean, in hindsight, we would have liked to have added back a bit more because it's been on a bit of a tear over the last few weeks. I think if you're looking from the, from the lows in March, you're probably up 20% um, from in, in high yield in nominal terms. So, so it's been a pretty significant bounce back. And I think that's what is a bit confounding to investors at the moment because history would tell you this should be a good time to buy. High yield you go you know spreads widen as you as you as the market realizes we're going into an economic downturn and then the valuations become compelling enough that you can effectively invest with a pretty decent break even um on on what would happen the problem has been just the speed of that retracement so you know we, we widened from what 350 spread on the u.s market up to about 11 percent we're back down around 600 at the minute and i think even that even that is probably a little bit too high and, and masking some of the underlying components of, of the index so we've we've retraced over two-thirds and the problem i see it as now is that the market's pricing in a pretty solid recovery and there's still a lot of uncertainty ahead both from economic fundamentals and as we've talked about some of these companies that are probably going to struggle to survive over the coming period so that makes me a little bit more wary but the flip side of that is this has all been driven really a lot or a lot of it's been driven by what the central banks have done and just this overwhelming quantitative easing support that we've seen from them. And what it does is it means you need to look at high yield relative to other markets. And as we've spoken about earlier, you know, gilts at 20 basis points, you've got cash at zero, you've got investment grade credit at 2%. So we've we've seen, I think it's five, the five largest weekly flows into US mutual funds in the high yield space. Um, and six of the largest seven have all been in the last 12 weeks. And it's just that demand for yield, that demand for income. I think that's going to continue to push people into the high yield space, which means if you, even if you do get a little bit of a sell off, as long as you've got this central bank support, I think it's going to be bought because there's there's very few other spaces in the fixed income market, as we've discussed, where you can find 
can find that income. So I actually think it probably continues to do to do reasonably well. So you know, we're not adding any more at the moment. We're not really selling any either at this time. Thank you. Uh, Ian, just to follow on from one of the points you made there, um, with central banks being such a substantial presence in the bond market via QE and uh, vast bond buying programmes, is it actually possible to have a diversified bond portfolio in this climate or or is everything essentially just an exposure to what central banks want to do? Good question. Um, I definitely think it's more challenging to have a diversified portfolio that people would like and that people are used to. And, that, and that's part of what James talked about earlier, because ultimately, when you want a diversified portfolio, you want to own high quality government bonds that have the ability to go significantly lower in yield when there's a big risk off event and you see spreads widen. And we're not going to have that ability. I mean, yes, the 10 year Treasury, it's around 70 basis points today. Can it go down to 40? Of course it can. Um, but it's not the 200 basis points collapse that you would typically used to see during downturns that offer you offers you that protection. So I do feel that there will still be diversification from owning core government bonds and some of the riskier parts of the mo of the, of the bond indexes or, or universe. But I just don't feel the diversification will be as strong as investors would like and will be as strong as has been seen through previous cycles. Thank you. Uh, James, as a as a multi-asset investor, when you're thinking about bonds, presumably the the idea is to be diversified across a range of possible market or economic scenarios. Is that possible in in a world where the central banks buy everything? Yes, I think it is. I mean, you've got you've got to sort of temper your enthusiasm when it comes to the potential for value add from traditional government bonds in times of crisis, but they are still you know, really the ultimate safe haven. You know, you can think of it as almost an event risk hedge. They're expensive. You don't want to hold them. We don't really get excited about the prospect of holding them as a long-term returns driver. Um, but at periods where, you know, you get severe selling pressure in what you think of as risk assets, it does it does perform a, a very effective role uh, from a diversification uh, perspective. So we we think of Govies, uh, you know, particularly sort of high quality Govies as an insurance policy. They are expensive, but you pay for it. But you you do want to have some in your portfolio because it provides that safe haven uh, in periods of uh, acute market stress. Thank you, Alex. Um, as, a, as a total return investor, you're looking across the market. Do you look at the bond market and see different functions for each of the different types of fixed income instrument out there? David, I think um, James just alighted on an absolutely fundamental point, and that's the fact that a lot of people buy bonds as an offset to equities. And um, even in a world where yields are incredibly low and you don't get much income, you've held bonds because they give you a great risk-off hedge when equity markets take a bath. But I think it's worth thinking about why we think that the last 30 years has been a negative correlation between bonds and equities. But over the very long run, it's more often than not positive. In fact, the negative relationship between bonds and equities is a function of a low inflation world, specifically one that's below about 2.5%. So what you're going to find is that if the world looks more inflationary in future, your principal portfolio hedge is going to be just another liability. And that challenges the fundamental building blocks of most people's balanced portfolios. So that's really important to keep in mind. Thank you. Um, a relatively recent uh, innovation in bond markets, certainly 
compared to 50 or 100 years ago are the opportunities in emerging market debt, uh, whether that be sovereign or corporate. Um, Ian, what's your view on on that part of of the fixed interest market? There is a traditional tale, I suppose, that those things do badly when the dollar does well, um, and the dollar does well in times of market strife, so that they're sort of very much geared to global GDP. Is that still how we should view those assets? So I do think you need to effectively split the dollar-denominated sovereigns up from some of the local currency um, risk that you can take across emerging markets. So if you think about the dollar-denominated bonds, it felt like a bit of an outcast, say, a month ago, because what was happening was you were having, you know, the ECB was buying government bonds, it was buying corporates, the Fed was buying treasuries, obviously, mortgages, and then had announced it was also buying corporates. There was no central bank backstop for for emerging market debt and what it led to was that we the initial rally that we saw in markets was was driven by the developed markets in particular the us credit markets and emerging markets lagged but obviously when you're looking around the world and you're looking at as we've spoken about earlier diff, difficulty in finding yield and income you know people start to gravitate towards the areas where there is still value and that was the emerging market so we've seen them do very well over the last couple of weeks and those spreads have come in that said, where you look, look at where we are today, we're about a 470 basis point spread across hard currency emerging market debt. And if you go back through history and you start at this spread, you do not lose money on a 12 month forward looking basis. Now, there's some volatility in that. You can definitely have drawdowns in between. But on a forward looking basis, from a long term investor standpoint, this is a pretty reasonable entry point. So I, I do th- feel that there is some opportunity there. And I say you're still getting north of 5% all in yield. On, on those markets. Um, then the other question is regarding, and you point out, is regarding the dollar and what impact does that have on the local bonds? Because typically, when you want to buy the local bonds, it makes sense to buy the, the, the currency risk with them, you know, particularly at the moment, because actually what's happened and maybe different to other crises is that the emerging market central banks have been able to reduce interest rates pretty aggressively, given just the lack of inflation globally that's been, that's been going on. Um, and the market hasn't penalized them for that. So you've actually got very low yields in, in a lot of other, uh, a lot of the local emerging bond space. And what, what's happened is we've seen a big unwinding or a big sell off in the currencies. And that is where the value is. And if we do, if the global economy continues to recover, and this isn't sort of a full start and, you know, we don't have a second lockdown or anything like that, then there is a lot of opportunity across some of the emerging market currencies. And we're, we're starting to look at them, some of those and starting to take advantage of some of those. But again, it's a similar story to what we were discussing on high yield. Not all countries are equal. You want to be selective. You want to make sure you're in the fundamentally strong countries because there are actually some countries that are going to struggle through through the next year or, or so. And you want to probably be avoiding their currency. So there's still a lot to do in the space. I think there is a lot of value at the moment. But as, as always, it's, it's being selective and, and, and being, um, you know, being um, doing the analysis on exactly where you get invested. Thank you. Um, James, uh, how do you look at emerging markets as an overall asset class? How do they fit into a multi-asset portfolio? And then breaking that down, uh, what role do you see for bonds within that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, I suppose the thing about as a multi-asset investor, we also have the uh, the equity markets we can throw into the mix. And then you've, you've got a decision tree, which I suppose involves the amount of currency you want to take involve, uh, you want to take on board. The volatility there can sort of taint the fixed income returns in many ways, depending on you know uh, uh, 
what you want to look at. And so sometimes we, we would prefer the equity over the fixed income, uh, or the, uh, but we also do make decisions around hard currency versus local currency as well in the portfolios. And so we've got a lot of different tools potentially at disposal. We are, we are in emerging market debt. We are interested in uh, the yield spread on, 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 on the hard currency side of things. But again, just to be uh, really careful, it's much like the point you made about the, the credit markets as well. Balance sheet strength is key. And what we shouldn't underestimate uh, is how uh, uh, swinging some of these uh, measures to keep the economy going are for um, some of the emerging markets. And, and so we need to be very careful to make sure that you know we, we uh, stick with the economies that are the, the best place to weather this and that we'll come out the other side uh, in good shape. Thank you. Alex, um, the worldview that you've articulated and which is, I think, very much a, a worldview that, that Ruffer have held for some time about uh, a potential uh, spike in inflation. Um, how do emerging market bonds and emerging market economies generally fit into that narrative? Um, I'd actually just like to come back, if I may, David, something Ian sure. touched on earlier, which is the cascade effect of the reach for yield. So if cash pays you nothing, you buy sovereign bonds, then they pay you nothing because the prices get bid up and the yields fall, and then you move into corporate credit and emerging markets. And um, the difficulty is that means that relative to one another, these asset classes can look quite attractive. But in absolute terms, everything is arguably overexpensive if you think that the world looks more inflationary going forward. And it does drive some extraordinary investment decisions. So talking of emerging markets, the best one I always think of is um, Argentina issued a, a century bond a few years ago at a yield of about 7%. Now, Argentina, in the 200 years since it's been an independent country, has been in default or restructuring on average one out of every three years. So wow. it doesn't take genius to realize that 7% yield mathematically is not compensating you for the risk. But on a relative basis, it looked like a steal if you're simply comparing it to your 0.7% in the US. So you do have to be very careful about how this yield mania drives you into asset classes that are fundamentally riskier than you're prepared to own. And if I may, one final point, which is um, I saw actually James use a very funny analogy in something he'd written some time ago um, about how people need to be cautious about credit mismatch. People tend to buy this in funds. It's very easy to get into quite an illiquid asset class. But he used the term lobster pots, easy to get in, hard to get out. Uh, we use the term uh, shouting fire in a crowded theater. Everything's fine when you're trying to get into these asset classes. But fundamentally, investors need to remember a lot of this stuff in EM and corporate credit is fundamentally illiquid. And you might not be able to get out as easily as you can get in. Thank you for that, Alex, um, and excellent, uh, excellent research there, citing uh, citing James's paper. Um, thank you all for joining me today, and tune in next week for another edition of the FT Advisor podcast. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.